Welcome to episode 301. 301. Of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Brian, we are well into the threes. Welcome to the 300. Yeah, we're we're deep into the 300s already. <laughs> Let's get the 300s started right, Marshall. We've got a fun episode ahead. We're going to do a little bit of follow-up. We've got some news, listener questions, and then some cool things, as always, to wrap us up. Before we get into all that, we want to thank our sponsor, Abstract, for making this episode possible. Yes, thank you to Abstract. Abstract is the design workflow management system that empowers design teams and stakeholders to seamlessly manage, version, and collaborate on design files. So today, most design teams work on multiple versions of the same file, often duplicating efforts and, as a result, overwriting and losing work. So design teams are still spending a frustrating amount of hours searching for files, exporting them from one tool and importing them into another, consolidating feedback from multiple sources, and never really knowing what changes have been incorporated and what's been approved. So welcome, Abstract, the tool to solve all of these problems. It's like GitHub, but it's for designers. It's a team's version-controlled source of truth for all of your design work, bringing together the design workflow into a single, unified place for designers, for developers, and for all the other stakeholders in your organization to keep your work moving forward. It is end-to-end collaboration, everything from versioning design files and storing them, requesting reviews, collecting feedback, presenting work, and then when things are ready to get built, you can hand an abstract document off to developers and get things built. All this works on a platform that supports both on and offline modes, so you can do your work on the go. Yeah, in just the last couple of years, Abstract has over 100,000 users. That's a lot of people. That's people from companies like Intuit, Zappos, MailChimp, and thousands of others across 75 countries. They all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflows. So as the roles of designers and developers and product managers become more intertwined, the team at Abstract believes that a more collaborative and open platform is going to enable faster production cycles. Today, Abstract seamlessly integrates with Sketch, the design tool of choice for many of you listeners out there. So if you're using Sketch, you should be using Abstract. But if you're using other tools, keep an eye out. In 2019, Abstract is going to continue rolling out support for more design file types from the Adobe Suite to beyond. You can get all of this and more. Start digging into what's possible at abstract.com. They're going to give you a 30-day free trial for you and your entire team. Once again, that's at abstract.com. Get started on that free trial. Thanks, Abstract. Thank you, Abstract. All right, Marshall, follow-up. Last week was episode 300, the big one. Sure was. Got some nice tweets. Got some uh, people saying congratulations. That felt great. Mm-hmm. So thank you to everyone who... Actually, we got a lot of emails last week, too, after last week's episode. Yeah. That was really yeah, nice. Yeah, that was really cool. Long and uh, well-written and well-thought-out and very kind emails from some listeners. Yeah. That was really cool. We got one email in particular from from someone. Do you want to talk about this one? Yeah, so one email we received in particular is from a listener named Jeff Parsons. Thanks for sending that in, Jeff. He says some really nice words and gives us some really great feedback. First off, he's from New Zealand, but he's living in Germany when he stumbled across Brian's blog, the thing we mentioned that uh, started this whole design details thing off. And he's been a listener since the very first episode. So holy shit. That's bananas. That's a lot of details to listen to. So he says there's a design community in New Zealand where he lives, but he's not much of a networker. So our podcast has been really good for him as an introverted person. And you are not alone, Jeff. Uh Uh, I think both Brian and I are also introverts. Hence the podcast and not actual community. (laughs) (laughs) Hence why we do this solitary from our from our office spaces behind a microphone in my office. Yeah, once a week where nobody can see us or interact with us. We can take a nap afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
And this this is what warmed my heart. Is he said he said that he thought that I was a good host. Oh, which which made me feel nice. And he said that a lot of the stuff that I talk no, about no, is outside read of the actual read the actual words. <laughs> okay, yeah. He says a lot of the shit you talk about. <laughs> I just thought that was a funny way of phrasing it. I don't know, Marshall. You're fine. You talk about a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I do talk a lot about about a lot of shit. Yeah, but I think I've I've helped him expand his sphere of interest because uh, some of the stuff I've recommended, like YouTube channels and gaming videos, aren't something he would watch normally. But he's beginning to embrace some of that, so that's that's pretty cool. And and he even has a few Neil Stevenson books himself, which is what I recommended last week with the Snow Crash. But yeah, he had some feedback. So one of the things he suggested is he is a designer, but he doesn't work in tech. And we definitely, you know, I think unconsciously steer towards the tech side of this stuff. But totally. he works at an insurance company and there's, he says, I'm sure I'm not alone. There must be designers in all sorts of in- industries who listen. Absolutely true. Uh, so he'd love to hear more about the design and designers in the not so glamorous companies and industries. For example, not the Airbnbs, Googles, Facebooks, Ubers, and et cetera of the world. Good point. You make a very good point. I think the reason we talk about that kind of stuff is that's where our area of expertise lies. But there's certainly an entire universe of of design industries out there that you know, overlap with what we do that we don't really talk about too much. So uh, maybe that's a that's an AI for you, Brian. To um, sorry, an action item for you, Brian. <laughs> an artificial intelligence for you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, for you to find some people who are outside of the the typical tech design industry and expand our scope. I will do my best, Jeff. All right. We mentioned he lives in New Zealand and he says there must be other listeners from outside the States. That's true. So he says, I'd love for the pod to branch out and explore perspectives from other countries. We mentioned that Thai design podcast a few weeks ago. Design Picnic was the name of that one? Yeah, I think that was what it was called. Yeah, well, well, show notes. We also had fellow Kiwi Owen on once and podcast guy from Australia. He says that was good shit. So, yeah, again, I think that's the same action item. But, yeah, one of the things he calls out is uh, the, the episode 297 where we talked about the boring stuff, the frustrating things. He says, it's good to stay positive, but it was so great to hear that the shit I have to struggle through rings true for your, you guys, too. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's an overwhelming feedback we've gotten from that particular episode is like, wow, I'm, I'm happy to hear that I'm not the only one who goes through this. Oh, it kind of sucks that nobody really has an answer, but it, there's a solidarity thing there that is it's really nice. Totally. Yeah, so uh, keep going into the nitty-gritty design details and digging into the tools and design principles, working processes, all that stuff. Yeah, so thanks for, for your email, Jeff. That was, yeah. that was really nice and helpful and good feedback there and appreciate all all the time you put into writing this thing i talked for a long time that wasn't even everything that he wrote yeah so. no it was such a good email so i woke up to that on thursday and marshall and i immediately or you know as soon as marshall woke up we text each other like oh what a sweet email i'm like this dude's getting a shout out <laughs> yeah yeah so thanks jeff but related to what you uh were mentioning so we we called out design picnic which is a podcast for tie designers so we also got a tweet this week from alexis Colado, who said congratulations on the 300th episode and then proceed to say design details inspired me to make my own podcast but didn't link to it so i did a little digging i.e clicked on alexis's twitter profile and discovered a, another podcast called roots which is a podcast about the stories of filipino designers produced mm. by alexis Colado. so we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well but it's rootspodcast.design so if you are filipino or intrigued by the perspective of filipino designers here's a podcast for you so that was cool. Thanks, Alexis. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and the and the last tweet we're going to mention here is from oh boy, Super Team. Oh boy, Super Tim. It's a cool name. It's like Super Team. Yeah, or a Super Tim. It's like a guy named Tim who owns a Toyota Supra. Uh, <laughs> Toyota Supra. That's kind of a deep cut, right? I was thinking the shoe company. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Oh, well, that was when I was growing up. That was the cool car. It had the biggest wing of oh, all time. Toyota <laughs> back Supra. Back in your day, <laughs> is like the is like the St. Louis arch of of spoilers. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, Super Team. Sorry for messing up your name, I'm sure, says, I wonder if you guys have accounted for a listening pattern like this. 28 episodes in two weeks. That's a lot of design details to listen to. Two episodes a day. I don't have time for two episodes a day. I don't know how you did it. So no, that's an unaccounted for listening pattern. I mean, just maybe bump us up. Here's here's actually, here's a, a little life pro tip for you or a design details pro tip for you. If you are using a podcast app that allows you to change the, the listening rate, the playback speed, bump it up to like 1.25. I find that's the only way that's tolerable to listen to myself on these podcasts, like when I do show notes and stuff. It's got to be 1.25 or higher, otherwise I fall asleep. So I would recommend that. And he says, uh, the only unfortunate constraint being 1.6x yeah. of listening. But yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, if you want to listen to a bunch of episodes, speed them up. Yeah. Speed them up. Yeah, I've, I've spun up most talk podcasts I listen to to like 1.2 or 1.3 because it avoids the chipmunk effect but it's still parsable yeah remove silences if that's a or trim silence whatever your thing happens to be if that's an available option and yeah 1.2 to 1.3 i find is pretty good i love that pocket casts tracks all the stats for these things so if i look at mine the trim silence feature has saved me one day and 11 hours of listening time one day and 11 hours just by trimming silence automatically from podcasts how do I check that? All stats? Trim silence, seven hours and 14 minutes. Yeah, get on my level, Marshall. But overall, from skipping variable speed, trim silence, and skipping intros, I've saved a day and two hours. Yeah. And of how many how many days have you listened for, though? 35 days and 20 hours. For me, it's only in four days and 23 hours. Oh, wow. Oh, so your ratio is way higher. Yeah. Impressive. And so I guess listening to 28 episodes in two weeks is also impressive. So thank you for listening. <laughs> We're glad to have you along. Appreciate the marathon. Yeah. Willingness to do the marathon. Yeah. Okay. Last bit of follow-up since we got so many nice messages last week. Uh, Race Swisher, friend of the pod who has sent in several listener questions at this point, wrote us an iTunes review. It was a five-star review. I'll have you know. So thanks for <laughs> thanks for the five stars. Race says, I've especially enjoyed the following episodes, which feature a new format and co-host. There you go, Marshall. Tis I. Ray says, I'm a beginner when it comes to design and tech, but still able to extract tons of enjoyment and wisdom from their discussions. Brian and Marshall's chemistry, humor, honesty, and overall vibe sets them apart from any other design podcast. And then continues to, to say thank you for answering his questions from DMs. There's certainly something for everyone in this podcast. So thank you, Race, so much for the questions and for the kind review. We appreciate it. And if you'd like to leave a review for us on iTunes, we would very much appreciate it. It, it helps us uh, be found by more people. And the more people who find us, the more people who we can potentially help. So that's a good thing. And we'll read it on the show. So yeah, also we'll shout you out in the show. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's it for follow up. Let's get into some news. Hit me, Brian. So this week, Figma rolled out a page on their website called the Plugins Beta. They are letting people apply to join the Figma Plugins Beta to let people start interacting with frames and nodes and layers inside Figma files. This is a long-awaited, probably, if I had to guess, the most requested feature 
that Figma gets, especially for people like me coming from Sketch several years ago, where there is a really, really rich plugin ecosystem and the plugins make the tool what it is. Mm -hmm. So anyways, Figma has announced the plugin beta. I did a little bit of weaseling. I am not ashamed to admit. And I... (laughs) got my way into this plugin beta. So I have started playing around with the Figma plugins beta. And I just wanted to explain a little bit about how people might expect it to work, but also set expectations that it's very early days. And the beta label is beta for a reason. So there's two interesting things here. One is I don't think they've quite figured out how distribution is going to work. So it's not entirely clear how one might install or distribute plugins which is, I think, something that Sketch took a little while for them to figure out. It's quite smooth these days, so I expect that to get better in time. But the way it works right now is you can go into Figma, and there's going to be a new developer panel or a new developer option in the menu dropdown, and you can create a new plugin. And what that does is it spins up a few files for you automatically. The files are a TypeScript file that gets compiled to JavaScript, a type library for Figma. So you get really beautiful autocomplete features as you're interacting with the Figma API. Then there is a manifest, a TypeScript configuration, and an HTML file. Ooh, what could that HTML file be? (laughs) So the way it works is the Figma plugins will allow you to create HTML, CSS, and JavaScript plugins. And you can use a console that appears in Figma. So you can actually just write JavaScript commands to interact with your file. And for anyone who's written, I guess, TypeScript or is familiar with that world, you have access to most of the APIs that you would have access to when writing vanilla JavaScript, which means you can do, in theory, anything. There's a few constraints with how they're going to sandbox it so that you can't, you know, go buck wild and destroy Figma. So they are putting plugins inside of a sandbox. I'm not really sure of the technical architecture here, but they've made it so that you can talk to Figma without necessarily being able to destroy Figma. But that HTML file that they create for you in the plugin is something that you can style. You can put in whatever you want, text, images, inputs, text areas, buttons. You can put anything in there. And every piece of UI that you put in that HTML file can send callbacks to a separate file, which is basically a Figma function that listens for events that happen in that HTML interface. So for example, you could write an HTML file that contains an input that is a search query input. And you could say, find layers with the following layer name. You type in the query into the input, hit submit. That query will get passed to a Figma plugin handler where you can then write your own function to traverse all of the layers in your Figma file and find all layers containing that name. So that would be a pretty simple example. But they've also started to lay out some documentation for how you could communicate with external APIs. So like talking to the internet, which will be possible, which is exciting. So yeah, you'll be able to communicate with external services. I don't know how authentication will work. I asked in their Figma beta Slack team if you'd be able to have access to the user profile of the person using Figma. I don't know exactly how that's going to be possible yet. So there's a million open questions, but at a high level, it looks like it's going to be HTML, CSS, and JavaScript with a very special Figma API that you can interact with to touch the document that you're working in. Zoom in, select layers, create layers, all that kind of good stuff. So it's early days. Obviously, there's a lot to be done, but I'm very excited for this progress that it's actually happening because this is 
something that the Figma community has needed for a long, long time. And if the developer community takes to it in the same way that they took to the Sketch plugins ecosystem, I think this is going to be really compelling. But, you know, execution will will tell us more. So looking forward to the future, Marshall. It's an exciting time. And if any of you out there are interested in creating a Figma plugin, you can sign up for their plugins beta at figma.com slash plugins hyphen beta. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. But you can apply to join and then they basically just whitelist your account as far as I can tell. So there you go. Figma plugins. Cool. Yeah, man, this is the this is like the main thing that's held me back from using Figma and and stuck with Sketch. Because I mean they're they're very, very, very similar. Transferring from one to the other is not a big deal. But yeah, the options I have to extend the the basic functionality of Sketch with plugins is huge. Everything from visual ornamentation, right? Like back when, back before dark mode was a thing, we had midnight. Midnight was a great plugin. But even now there's a thousand little things about rearranging and, and searching and, and renaming and stuff that I, that I use. These little bespoke little plugins that, that make my life so much easier because they fill out the functionality of the, the basic app itself. And, and when it's just the basic stuff, it's hard to justify building all those little features, you know, these little niche features. But if you're one person who needs it, you can build it for yourself and then everybody can use it. And, and Figma doesn't have to think about building all those things. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully here in the future, this will become as robust and I can consider potentially moving over and, and having that ability to switch between the two is, is kind of nice too. Yeah, I would imagine it's going to take a little while, but you know, Good things in time. Hopefully it, it works well. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Beta, beta, beta. Beta, beta, beta. Cool. Should we go into some listener questions? Let us. Let us answer questions from the listeners. All right. This first one is a quick one. This is from Sahil, who asks, feeling kind of dumb right now, what do you mean when you guys say, I see, in the context of your role? When I Google it, I find integrated circuit designers. <laughs> Great question. Something that we always forget. This is lingo and jargon that not everybody might know. So Marshall, what is an IC? Yeah, so we didn't actually say what this stands for in the body of the podcast. So when I was writing show notes, I tried to account for this by including the definition in the description, but a lot of people don't read those. So that's probably why it skimmed past you. But yeah, IC stands for individual contributor. This is a an employee who does design work but isn't a manager and the scope of their work is to to solve problems for the team and basically create mocks and or prototypes or whatever but yeah your 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 job is that you you contribute to the team individually without being a people manager yeah touches the materials that it takes to build the product not like at a at a low level so you know programmers can be ICs designers are ICs but that's in contrast to a manager who isn't touching the materials e.g. isn't moving pixels or writing lines of code they're just managing people and that's what you mean by low level not that they are that they are like underpaid employees no, no, or no, anything no, yeah. it's just like uh, closer to the metal is what you're saying yes close to the metal but can be equally senior and well compensated and experts in the field of course so yeah you can be you can be a long-term ic and be paid handsomely you don't have to necessarily be a manager cool so that's an ic boom done all right what's next next one is from a twitter dm so uh it was not explicitly said that we could say the name so it's anonymous says i just recently started getting into grid systems and the eight point grid is what's everywhere the 10-point grid was something that I was hearing for the first time on the podcast. I'd be glad if y'all can talk a bit more in future episodes or just share resources with me on here that could be helpful with understanding it. So this is a confusing question because I don't know that we said 
We did. We set a 10-point grid. So we were talking about, this is the last episode, we were talking about, like, what, you know, what are we going to be talking about in the future? And we, we were, like, joking that everything's going to be totally different and we'll listen back on these past episodes oh. and be like, 8-point <laughs> grid, it's all 10-point grid. What were we thinking at the time? Oh, right? I see, I see. Oh. Yeah, I think that was a stupid joke I made. Yeah, so, and it was a stupid joke because 10-point grids, in my opinion, are suboptimal. Yeah. And would you like to know why, Brian? Tell me more. Okay, here's why eight-point grids are better. It's all because of twos. It's all it's all because of twos. So eight is two cubed, two to the third, right? Two times two times two. And when you do that, first off, like it's it's kind of like a you know, base two, like the way a computer thinks to begin with, right? The the computer only knows two numbers, zero and one, right? Yeah. And everything is based off of that. So this is, I think it's kind of flowing from that. And, but it has some really nice results or some, some emergent niceness. So for example, if you are trying to create padding or margins and you're playing around with it and you're at a 10 point grid that breaks down to really like a five point grid, the half sizes, sometimes, you know, 10 is too small and 15 is too big or 15 is too small and, and 20 is too big, right? Like when you, lower the size of the base of the grid to, to eight points or four points, you have greater granularity. So when you're trying to align things and get the, the spacing between them really nice, you have you have more granularity there. So it's less large jumps between your default sizes, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, so everything is a, a factor of two. So I, I, the, these numbers are like burned into my brain because I see them so often, but you know, Two, four, and then eight and sixteen. In between you got twenty-four, but then thirty-two, sixty-four, one twenty-eight, two fifty-six, five twelve, ten twenty-four. You all you you have heard these numbers before, right? Like uh-huh. you know, a gig is one thousand twenty-four megs, right? Yep. Same thing with a terabyte. Like this is how computers work. This is the zero one thing I was talking about earlier. So if you keep those numbers in your brain, it's really easy to figure out what your kind of the multiples of your base size can be. And I don't know, the number, the the math just all works out really nicely. And if you're thinking in a, a 10 point grid, those numbers are rounder in that they all end in zeros. But for my money, I'm I'm a I'm a four point eight point guy. Yeah, I would add that like when you start moving into different screen resolutions as well, it gets more confusing to talk about things on a ten point grid because you could be dividing things by half to a point where you end up with designs that are on a half pixel. Good point. Whereas the two, if everything's divisible by two, that's impossible. So you know, if you have an eight point wide thing at three X, then at one X that will go down to two, you know? So you'll never end up with a half pixel. Whereas a 10 point grid could be divided to five and then to 2.5. So yeah, I think there's the higher range of options on the half steps with the two, four, six, eight kind of stepper versus five to 10. So that extra fidelity just helps you have better designs, I think, or it gives you more options in your designs and then certainly screen resolutions having fewer half half pixel elements will make your designs look better on high resolution displays. Yeah, exactly. When you when you start to split these things down, twos or factors of two degrade really nicely uh, in a way that, that you don't start getting into fractions or decimal points, right? Exactly, yeah. For further reading on this, I would check out Bryn Jackson, uh, previous co-host of Design Details, wrote a blog post on this. It's at spec.fm if you scroll to the bottom uh, and go to the specifics. So spec.fm slash specifics. There is a blog post called the eight point grid and he explains more about why this is a, a solid method for designing. 
I fa- I think if you even just Google eight point grid, that his spec FM blog post is like number one or two in Google search results. Nice. So there's lots more reading to be done there on why the design community has generally rallied around that scale. So uh, feel free to read read some more there. Yeah, this is applicable for for icons too. So uh, typically an icon is 24 points, and there's the granularity there too of breaking down your your icons to smaller sizes. So half of that is a, a 12 point icon, obviously, right? And two thirds of that is a 16 point icon. So you have like these kind of reduction factors or these reduction percentages that you can kind of snap to and get your your icons to read at smaller sizes if they don't if you don't want to use them at their their natural size of 24 points. Precisely. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's why we use the eight point grid. I will I will fight for that eight points to my death. Yeah. But maybe I'll change my mind in the future. Who knows? But I don't math is not gonna change, so I don't expect my opinion to change. Yeah. And so that was the joke we made at the end of the episode was maybe maybe in the future there will be a ten point grid and there will be some new compelling reason why that's a thing, but uh, we don't foresee that happening necessarily. Our last listener question comes from Kelly Smith, a professor at Maryville University in St. Louis, who has sent in a question in the past, but we got the the green light to use her name. So hi, Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Kelly asked during the episode you talked where we talked about the class curriculum, which I think was two episodes ago, designing a design curriculum. You talked a little bit about the difference between designing for iOS versus Android. I know the differences at a base level, but not at the level that you guys seem to know. Again, seem to know. (laughs) (laughs) Could you tell me more about that? Marshall. <laughs> yeah, when you're vague, you can make people think that you're smarter than you are. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, how we have fooled you. No, I'm just kidding. Let's talk about iOS versus Android from a design perspective, not necessarily from like a software operating system level. Although maybe that factors into it. There's certainly going to be interplay, but maybe it's worth spending time on like the metaphors that each platform believes in for conveying depth and structure and navigation and things like that. So I think probably the the place to start would be kind of a, a fundamental measurement that each platform has decided upon. And this this has far-reaching implications for the entire system for each. So on iOS, they have decided that the optimal tap target size, so the size of a button, or at least the size of the tappable area of a button, at its very, very smallest, needs to be at least 44 by 44 points, right? Uh, and on Android, they've decided that it's 48 by 48 points. Okay. So what this means is that all nav bars in iOS are 44 points tall and all nav bars in Android are 48 points tall and, and buttons, uh, inherit kind of a similar thing. Okay. But that initial decision of the tap target size radiates throughout the entire system. Okay. In what ways? Well, like I said, with the with bar sizes and with the padding necessary around tappable elements. So if you have something that, that is going to be tapped, aside from the one extreme circumstance of having a link in a body of text, you could potentially have two links right next to each other. But both OSs are really good about determining where your actual the point of your tap was meant to be. But for the most part, if you have tappable elements, you want them to have at least that forty four or forty eight point size and they have to have clearance around them so that not only do they feel like they're tappable and that you're not going to accidentally hit something you know next to them but also so that there's enough space for the engineer to put in that tap target of the of the base size 
That makes sense. Yeah. And so it seems like saying 44 to 48 seems like such a small amount, but it seems as though the implication of that is material ends up feeling just like a larger user interface. Yeah. It's more white space. It's, yeah, it's airier, right? So like a, a row, a list of row items, like settings, for example, each of those rows is going to be 48 points high on Android and only 44 on iOS, and they pack in a lot tighter on iOS. I I feel like the rows are a little small for my taste on iOS. Yeah. Maybe that's just because I've looked at Android so much, but maybe it's because they they feel more tappable. Sorry? I said maybe because you're getting old. Oh, thanks, buddy. (laughs) I got you. I didn't even hear you. I'm so old. (laughs) Uh, Look at all these pixels getting too, they're getting smaller every year. I don't know what's happening. Well, haven't you ever noticed when, if you're going to tap on something and maybe the tap target is enormous, but the visual representation of the thing is smaller, you find yourself like really fine tuning your tap and you have to really carefully tap on the thing. And it's kind of, it's like a tiny amount of stress, but that adds up, right? Totally. And if that's a, if that's a problem throughout the entire OS, you just constantly feel like you're walking on eggshells trying to not mistap, right? Yes. So making that, that tap target larger and, and especially the visual representation of the thing to be tapped larger always helps because you can feel like you you can fat thumb it a little bit more without having to worry about mistapping right makes sense okay so that's tap target let's talk about navigation yeah this is a whole thing this is a whole thing <laughs> so ios has basically two forms of navigation two like overarching forms of navigation there's back and there's home And that's kind of all you really need to think about. Android has slowly evolved over the years. And I think it's getting closer to the point of being back in home. But they also have this concept of up, which is really confusing. What's the difference between back and up? Oh, boy, I could write a whole thesis on it. Okay, and people have actually. So (laughs) what's the difference between back and up? Back refers to the series of views that you have navigated through. And those aren't necessarily in the same app. So I could have tapped on a button that opened up another app, and when I hit the back button, it's going to take me back to the previous app. Whereas up would take me to the higher level of the, like the parent screen of this current screen in the current app. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, so back is, is more like a universal back. Regardless of where you were last in the OS, it will take you back to that place, even if it's outside the current app. And up will always take you up in the hierarchy of the current app. So I think it's worth talking about the history of the Android navigation in general because, you know, iPhones used to have a physical home button and the newer iPhones have like no home button. So the only way to interact with the device is through the screen. But Android used to actually have physical buttons outside of home. Some of the lower end phones still have physical buttons. Sure, sure. Okay, so that's, well, that is uh, certainly then something that every Android developer has to consider is that there is, there are physical buttons to navigate through an application. So iPhones have always relied on screen gestures and Android phones have basically have this legacy of supporting those physical buttons to go back home and then open the multitasking switcher or uh, yeah app switcher. And on Android, they aren't even necessarily always in the same place, but you have to account for all these things. Like there could be physical buttons or there could not be. There could be a digital version of those buttons, like the system bar locked at the bottom of the screen for every screen. And it lives at, at the Chrome level of the OS or, or there might not be uh, in the newer OSs. There's more of um, kind of a, a bar at the bottom like iOS does where you swipe up and that's your app switcher. 
Um, and if you swipe up further, you go home and you can pull that bar left and right to go back and forth between apps. And you can sometimes, I don't know if they have edge swipe for the screen, but then there's still like the, the back button to go up in the app. Yes. Or actually, is it the up button now? I don't know. It's kind of confusing. <laughs> yeah, they, they switched it to be just software so it can change dynamically on the fly depending on what you're doing. Yeah, that legacy though, I think has fundamentally changed the way that you design for and account for Android applications. Like you can design flows to account for a physical back button that will be outside of the user interface that Android users are very familiar with using to navigate back. Whereas iOS, you almost always account for a screen swipe back or you have some sort of signifier like an arrow uh, or or, a carrot in the top left corner to to go back. Yeah, if I can go back, it's either there's there's kind of like four ways on iOS. Either there's a a back chevron in the top left or there's a close X in the top right or there's an edge swipe from the left side of the screen which corresponds to the, the back chevron, or there's a downward swipe to, to close a modal that pops up from the bottom. That's usually with the X. So like, the, yeah, those are the kind of the four things, but it doesn't account for up necessarily because there really is no, or, or actually those backs are up and the Android back is like a system back. It's almost like your, your browser back button. So like you could click on a link that takes you to a different site but hitting the back button doesn't take you to the home page of that site. It takes you back to the previous site you were at. Right. I guess the yeah, the browser metaphor is probably a better way to describe up. Or no, better way to describe back. I'm confusing myself, Brian. <laughs> I mean, this is honestly a problem with designing for Android, I've found, is the considerations are so different if you've come from iOS, like remembering that this row of actions exists at the bottom that people are familiar with, and it, it changes the way that you design navigation systems entirely. Uh what sort of signifiers you need for, you know, this can be closed or opened or navigated to and from uh, when a lot of times you can drop those because there is a back button at the bottom that the people are familiar with. So that's certainly, I feel like, one of the fundamental differences. And it, and it was a really smart decision to put the back button at the bottom of the screen, you know, on the chin of the device when, when Android first started, right? Because it was within reach of your thumb and you didn't have to reach all the way up to the, to the top left of the screen to go back, which until iOS implemented the back, the, the edge swipe to go back, that's what you had to do. You had to reach up to that top left screen every time. So it was a really smart idea. The problem is, I think, with the whole up versus back thing, they started to add functionality that was useful for pro users and confusing as hell for the average user. It seems like they've slowly been digging themselves out of that that hole, whereas iOS just did it the simple way from the very beginning, and they've never had to like undo or retrofit any of their interactions. Yeah, exactly. I think the the part of the Android story related to that is just the massive, massive device ecosystem that you have to support when you're designing for it. And I think Material's gotten better with this in the last couple of years. There's this concept of theming, putting your own theme on top of Material design or putting it on top of the Material design spec. And I think that's just a, a way to try and account for the multitude of devices, not only the age of the device, but also the, the screen quality, the manufacturer, different ORMs that sit on top of it. And that just makes it more complex to keep track of how things should work. So that's why I find that the material designs are much more philosophical. It's like, here's here's some ways we think about measurement. Here's ways we think about typography. And then here's some general guidelines for theming. But go 
go nuts. Um, I think iOS feels a little bit more opinionated in terms of like, this is the way a thing should work entirely. Like, do this thing. They make it really easy to do the stock thing. And it's become easier to do the non-stock thing, but it's much harder to to make a custom element in, in iOS for sure. Yeah. I think they're converging, though, don't, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, on Android, not all of the the spec has actually been implemented. So there's a spec for it, but you kind of have to implement it yourself sometimes. Yeah. Uh, depending on the particular gesture or feature. Could you talk a little bit about the difference in iOS and Android with the way depth is conveyed? I've always found this super interesting, the way shadows and lighting the metaphors are slightly different on each platform yeah so this is i'm I'm glad you asked this is the next thing i wanted to talk about yeah so on android their design system is called material and the reason it's called material is because the all of the pieces of the interface are kind of described as quantum paper it's it's like it behaves like paper plus right so it can stretch it can you know it can resize itself it can reshape itself it can split itself or mend two pieces together, but it all casts a shadow and has a, a key light that determines its illumination and how it casts that shadow. It has a, an elevation away from the layers that live under it. And every type of component on the screen is confined to a specific layer, a specific depth level, kind of like airplanes flying in the air, right? Like you you have an altitude that you live at, so you don't run into anything else. The same philosophy applies in material. So there are, there are elevation numbers that are assigned. So for example, a, a floating action button, those little, like the plus button that's a circle in the bottom right, that lives at elevation six, right? Yep. And that's so that it can be above a, a list item that lives at zero and below a like a tab bar or a nav bar item. Actually, material causes it an app bar, the bar at the top of the screen. Those live, I believe, at like 16 or 24. No, actually, 12, something like that. Anyways, they're, they're above the, fl- the floating action button. But then, you know, if you have a dialogue, that's at a really high number. So it's above everything in the scrim that's behind it, like the, the dark overlay that's behind it. That has a high level, too. High level of elevation, too. So yeah, so that's how Android does it. It's these elevated pieces of paper. And when you tap on something, it, it reaches up towards the, the, the point of, of tapping, right? So it reaches up towards your finger and casts a longer shadow. So instead of being depressed when you, when you push something, instead of it going down into the screen, it comes up and mag- like a magnet, it snaps to your finger and comes forward. And that's how you kind of tell when you've tapped on something, when you've successfully you know, cr- done an action. Uh, whereas on iOS, it seems to be kind of the opposite. So they don't have this paper metaphor. There are levels, there are kind of levels of elevation, but they aren't defined by shadows. They're defined by transparency and blurriness, like the blurriness of the background behind the layers. And that's how you get background protection and separation from the layers behind. So depending on the mode you're in, if you're on light mode or dark mode, there there are several levels of blurriness that you can apply to a given layer or a, a given, I don't want to say material. <laughs> they are called materials in iOS 13 though. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's basically different frostinesses of glass, right? That's kind of how I think of these these two-dimensional planes of of glass that are that are frosted and obscure the thing behind them. iOS also uh, uses vibrancy to create contrast on these on these layers. So you actually pull through the color of the whatever is the content behind, say a, a text string. 
it won't just be a black text string. It will be dark and also pulling through the purple from the background or the orange from the background, which is how you get that nice, nice contrast. And, and it feels less that you, these are layers on top of each other than these are just kind of obscuring glass frosted things that are, are ephemeral, right? They're, they're kind of, they don't have any substance to them necessarily and they can be swiped away, which is the whole idea of like being able to see where you are at any given point you have the context of where you came from. So when something obscures your view, it's not actually obscuring it. You can actually see through to the background. So you, at any point, you know your geography. Perfect. And actually, so in iOS 13, they're they're providing a little bit more guidance on how this should work. It's been, I think there's just been one sort of set of, uh, I think they call it a visual effect, but now there's going to be four. They're called system materials. And there's four thicknesses of them where you could imagine that a thickness is an increase in the opacity and it changes the vibrancy of the color that comes through in the background. So there's going to be thick, default, thin, and ultra thin. And so you could imagine, you know, something thick might indicate a new view that sits on top of a new view indicating, you know, you're in a new context. We want the background view to be super non-distracting. We don't want you to pay too much attention to it, but it's there. Whereas an ultra thin might be something like a system dialogue or a, I'm not exactly sure where it will be used, but like a, an action sheet or something like we want it to be very clear that there's a layer that exists above your, your current context, but the, the interface that we're showing you is related to that context to not distinct from it. So they, they should be seen as part of the same sheet or closer together. Yeah. My guess that that ultra thin would be used for something like the track of a slider or, you know, the, the container of a switch or something like that. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. It's not a level above. It's just kind of a, a very slight delineation from the other background that it sits on. Yeah. I would also call out that. So the transparency and the blurriness has kind of been the thing for iOS for a long time. But there's one thing that's starting to change a little bit. And that is a, an increasingly common pattern where a view will push a view into the background when it is presented. Uh, the cards. The card metaphor. And so there's two ways that this can happen. I think one way, the perfect example is looking at Apple Maps. So if you look at Apple Maps, there is a card that can be swiped up and down that contains uh, the search field and contains suggested locations or recent direction searches. And as you s slide that up and down, the map in the background has a... Scrim, is that the word? Yeah, that's what we call it. A scrim or an overlay. Overlay, yeah. Applied on top of it. Can I can I uh, give a little etymology on scrim real quick? Yeah, sure. Because we keep using that word. So so we call it a scrim, but the reason we call it a scrim is if you've ever been to the theater and, and watched a stage play, if you've ever seen those, it's like a painting on fabric and the fabric is see-through. So if you put a light in front of the fabric, it, it appears opaque, but if you were to shine a light from behind it, it's transparent. You can see through the, the weave of it. Those are called scrims in, in the theater setting. And that's what we refer to as like dark overlays or light overlays. Is they, they, they're see-through transparent blockers. Yes. That is also something that Marshall had to teach me because I've always just called them overlays. Mm -hmm. So anyways, Apple Maps, that's, that's one example of, of how this might work. But you know, you'll notice that it feels, it feels like they're almost on the same plane, this sheet and the background maps. They're using the, the overlay to imply depth versus an application like Mail, where if you compose a new email, it actually pushes your inbox into the background, it scales it down, and you see like a eight dip sort of peak of that view 
from from the background view peeking. Oh, you just said dip instead of point. I'm so happy. Oh, yeah, I say dips. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, dips dips is uh stands for device independent pixels, which is the Android term for point. Point. Yeah. It's basically a pixel that doesn't care what density the screen is, whether 2x or 3x or 1x is just a, a point, a dip. Yeah. Dip point tomato tomato. <laughs> so anyways, I think this metaphor is going to become more common. I've noticed it popping up in a lot of places on iOS, uh, and it looks like it's going to be more widely adopted in iOS 13. Yeah, this is their suggestion to use for all. So there's a there's a call you can make, which is present modal view. Yeah. So normally you get a push modal view, which is what comes in from the right side of the screen. This is your, your traditional hierarchy navigation. But every once in a while, you'll do a kind of a modal thing where it's just like this is a sheet that comes up from the bottom. You're composing an email or whatever. That's called present modal view. I think their their recommendation is all present modal view screens views in the in the future will all use this card metaphor. So there you go. Because they can be swiped down is the cool thing. Like you can you can drag them from the header and swipe them down. You don't have to reach over to that cancel button. So that's another primitive difference. I mean, I don't know. It, it's really hard. We could spend probably another hour going through all the differences, but I think. I think we've covered some good places to start. It's navigation, the metaphor for depth, and like preserving context as you navigate around an application. And then you talked about tap targets and how that impacts the overall look and feel of the application where, yeah, material ends up feeling more airy would be a good descriptor. And yeah, more white space. iOS is maybe a little bit tighter. So, and I think that's actually Android's uh, materials philosophy is to build from white space, right? So you start with nothing and then you start adding things as opposed to, you know, you, you throw all the stuff on the table and start arranging it. Like the, the default should be nothing on screen and only add what you need. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's a really nice, yeah, the whole build from white is a really nice uh, philosophy they, they introduced in Material 2. Since we probably can't cover every single difference, what I would recommend, though, if you are interested in going deeper here, Kelly, is spend an afternoon, <laughs> pick a Sunday afternoon or something, sit down with the material design spec and the human interface guidelines and just read them both. And I think they're good for any designer to read through just because they are opinionated documents that talk about the rules that have informed those opinions. And I think that's really interesting and can be illuminating to understand like where the rules are coming from. Yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to understand that the key line is always 16 points from the edge when you know that that's a result of it being two times eight, yes. which is two times two times two times two. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. That's why it's that. You don't have to remember some arbitrary, oh, it's 16 because I just remember it's 16. No, it's eight times two, right? Yeah, yeah. So the HIG, Human Interface Guidelines, and then material.io slash design houses the material design spec. And these are both evolving. So the, the Human Interface Guidelines recently got the iOS 13 edition which includes things like these new visual materials, includes the spec and the rules for dark mode, which is fascinating. The new color documentation to account for dark mode is fascinating. They talk about these super minor differences in how color should work in dark mode. It's not simply about inverting, and then colors should account for the setting that they're in, and so they actually have the system blue changes ever so slightly if it's in dark mode same with all the greens and purples and reds it's not just a static color and even more if you're in high contrast mode so there's four colors for every color yeah yeah one thing i want to call about the dark mode thing is that uh one thing i'm kind of frustrated with is if you go to the hig they tell you how to call those 
colors in code, but they don't tell you what those colors are as a designer. So either you use their their built-in thing and you break down the symbols in, in Sketch or whatever, and, and you know you you um, detach from symbols so that you can actually see what the the values they're using are for for background blurs, etc. Or if you watch the dark mode panel on the WWDC panels that you can get access to, I think there's an Apple TV app even. I'll try and put a, a link in the show notes. But if you pause, they actually have the hex values and, and opacity values on screen at a certain point. So you can see what those colors actually are and and what and what they're using for for dark mode especially because it's like they're not listed anywhere they don't tell you anywhere which is kind of frustrating as a designer because the result is code and eventually you'll have to use that code to implement those things but that doesn't help me in my mocks you know right what's that hex man give me that hex and that opacity yeah i found myself going through the sketch file just detaching from symbol and trying to understand how everything works because it's nice when it's magic and you can just drag the symbols around, but getting to understand why the values are is is useful, a useful exercise as well, I think. Boy, oh boy, too. Even on the system apps, like the, it's not consistent, so you can't just take screenshots and try and match because it won't be accurate. Like it's 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 really hard to it's really hard to match exactly what Apple wants. Because is it is it forty four points tall of a row and with an interior stroke? Or is the stroke in between this cell and the next cell down? So now it's really like 48 and a half, or sorry, 44 and a half or 44 <laughs> and a third, right? Oh, God. Like depending on which app you look at, it's a different philosophy behind how that divider gets added to the view. Yeah. It's fucked up. I think that's why the HIG is useful and then just using system components when possible. That way you don't have to worry about those differences. Just like, oh. Yeah, it's the middle step that hurts, though. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Agreed. All right. Anything else on iOS versus Android? I feel like that was a little bit surface. But these are just deep things that have been developed for 10 plus years. So it's kind of hard to cover everything. Yeah, I mean, I try to touch on some of the tent poles, like, you know, the atomic units and the philosophies behind the elevations and, and tapping and, and and the navigation and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. Right, <laughs> There's right. a million different little differences. But yeah, I think that's a pretty decent tent pole overview of the major philo- philosophical differences. Cool. So thank you, Kelly, for letting us wax on about iOS and Android. If anything was confusing or needs clarification, let us know. Just send us a DM on Twitter, Design Details FM. We'll continue to answer listener questions. Otherwise, the HIG and the material spec are great places to start. Indeed. All right, Marshall, what's next? What's next? Okay, so so last week I made a promise. I said we would talk about WWDC this week, dub dub, as it's colloquially known. Yes. But... We're not going to. Why are we not going to, Brian? So I think it's super fun to talk about why we're excited about all the changes that are coming up. And we did this for Google I.O. most recently, like we did a Google I.O. episode. I don't know. I I guess maybe listeners can let us know if they're interested in hearing our opinions on WWDC. My feeling is that I don't know what we can add to the conversation right now, just since everything is such an early beta, we haven't tested anything And even when we did it with Google I.O., it was still just a lot of speculation and kind of just running through a list of changes. What I would be more interested in doing is when iOS 13 comes out is Marshall, you and I spending an hour before we record trying to find the most tiny nitpicky changes or (laughs) cool new additions or hidden gestures that that people might not know about. 
and talk through those kinds of things where we can actually put in work and create new value versus just recapping things. That's how I feel about it, but that's also a little bit party pooper if, if people want wanted to hear what we thought of WWDC. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fair to say that whatever we would say, someone else has already said it earlier and probably better than than us. So I, I understand your hesitance to to add to the hot take pile. So yeah, that's fine. I, th- I think we are better positioned to nitpick the details later on when the beta comes out, when the public beta is available, than we are to just recap how angry we are that there's a $6,000 monitor. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So listeners, let us know if you want us to continue covering events in the future. We certainly can, but I want to make sure we do it in a way where we're bringing something new to the table, whether it's a new perspective or we've been able to put in some sort of effort to discover new things that that aren't immediately obvious. So that seems more interesting to me, but let us know. I could be wrong. Cool. All right. So no WWDC, but we do have cool things, Brian. Yes. I'll go first this week. All right. My cool thing this week is a style of art that I have become enamored with in the past few weeks. So fucking cool. It is. So cool. How do I I describe this? Isometric, three-dimensional, sometimes animated scenes contained within a cube. (laughs) Is that an accurate description of this? Yeah, it's like like ISO room design. ISO room design. And we'll have links in the show notes. I don't know how to share these otherwise, but think loosely. You're looking at a 45 degree angle down isometric at these playful little scenes. Some of them taken from pop culture. Some of them are animated and all these are from different artists that I've sort of discovered over the last few weeks. One of them, Roman, I don't know how to pronounce this, but Roman Klo from Slovakia has been doing these little scenes. Uh, He did the helicarrier from the MCU He did the wall from Game of Thrones with a dragon breathing fire and melting the wall. And he's got all these other cool scenes. He has the Avengers headquarters as this cute little miniature isometric scene. Well, you can't not mention his uh, cyberpunk series with four parts or so. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, gotta. And with commentary even. And time lapses of all these things, or not all of them, but most of them. Yeah, and and Roman's doing tutorials as I don't. I guess this is his thing. Uh, PolygonRunway.com. It looks like a tutorial site to learn how to make this, which I'm actually interested in trying out because these seem super fun to make. There's another artist on Dribble that I found from Paris, who's named Guillaume Kirkjean. <laughs> I can't do it. Sorry. You know, a different, slightly different style. The the artwork here feels a lot like clay cities, like if you imagined. A city built of clay with playful colors, and and some of them are animated, some are not. That's what this would feel like. And then the third artist I found last week named Yarlan Perez. Jarlan Perez? No idea. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) I'll go with Yarlan Perez. Did isometric room design with a gaming theme. So it's uh, you see two sides of, of the interior of a room, and one of them is somebody with a really cool PlayStation setup, one of them is with a bunch of PC monitors glowing in like a basement cluttered storage room kind of vibe. Another one is a PC gaming setup. And the last one reminded me of like the inside of an Overwatch starting room. So cool. Yeah. With like the nice yellow glow. And ugh, the colors are just beautiful. These seem super fun. I love that they're just these little mini scenes. So for anyone who's looking for... It's like a diorama. Yeah. Yeah. Like a diorama. 
So you're going to have to check out the show notes for people listening. Just go to the show notes, click the links, and poke around these three artists. And I'm sure there's many more like them that I've yet to discover. But this is a really fun art style that I've I've fallen in love with. So that's my cool thing. Good, cool thing, Brian. This is I, I saw you tweet this uh, or one of these guys earlier this week, and I was like, wow, so good. I wish I could do that, but I can't. Anyways, I have a cool thing. Hit me. Okay, so my cool thing this week is not a album. It's not a YouTube video. It's not an audiobook. It's actually a product, Brian. Go figure. Ooh, tell me more. Yeah, so there's a company called Distill Union. They make they make a bunch of different products, mostly like wallets and, and things like that. And they make the wallet that I use every day that I'm a huge fan of. It's called the Wally Micro. It's a really nice little slide-up wallet. And they also make the sunglasses I wear, which are called the Maglock sunglasses. They have little magnets in the arms, so they stick the arms together, uh, even through like a shirt or something. So when you lean over... Your glasses don't fall off or fall fall out of your shirt or your pocket or whatever. Really nice. You can you can attach them to anything. So their newest product also uses magnets. It is a is a Kickstarter that's still currently active. If you go check it out now, I think it has nine days left, eight days left, nine days left as of the time of this recording, which means that it will end on uh, Monday, June twenty fourth, twenty nineteen. They are currently far past their goal of twenty five thousand dollars. They're currently sitting at over eighty thousand dollars. So. What is this thing? It is a modular magnetic key and wallet system. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I recommend you go watch the video on their Kickstarter, and I'll link to another video uh, by a YouTuber who did a review of it, which is what really sold me on this. Okay, so the way this whole thing works is it, is it leverages all of the magnet knowledge, I guess, they gained from working on the Maglock sunglasses, and it allows you to easily add and remove keys from these kind of pre-made configurations uh, that are like a wallet size or a little mini kind of wallet size or a little key loop, little strap thing. And so the way, the, the way, why is it better? If you have keys, you probably have one of those key rings that fucks up your thumbnail every time you try and get a key on or off. It sucks. Indeed. The little spiral thing. I hate it. I hate them. It's the worst. But everybody uses them. Like that's what everybody has. So how do you build a better mousetrap? Well, the way the better mousetrap that they built was they came up with a little magnet system that attaches to each key. If if you have keys that will click into the system like a normal key, they just like snap right in, snap out if you want to into these little um, holders that have the magnet. Or uh, if you have a weird shaped key, they have sticky ones that will like glue the magnet to the to the key. But once you have all of your keys set up um, and your cards and everything you can easily add and remove them just by snapping them together and then putting them in either the mod wallet or the key folio or the key loop. It's so modular, you can even have like car fobs and it all everything is because it's magnetic, it will stick to any metal surface. They even sell a little like mail tray thing that you're supposed to hang by your front door. You can charge your devices in it and you can stick your keys and your sunglasses. So those Magnolock sunglasses that I mentioned earlier, they'll stick to this thing too. And when you get home, you just snap everything to this uh, thing by the door. When you're ready to leave, you configure what you need. Maybe you only need a house key and the car keys. So you take out the stuff you don't need to, throw it up on that metal piece and they stick there. And then you can rebuild when you come back or whatever. Um, it just seems like a really great modular way to do this and the cool thing is when you put your keys in like the mod wallet or in the little key folio thing it's in a flat piece of leather padded it's like a little leather padded unit right so you can put it in the same pocket as your phone 
without worrying about your keys scratching up your phone. Mm. It's just really smart. They put they put a lot of effort into this. Uh, this is like their biggest Kickstarter that they've ever done. And I'm a big fan of the company. I think they've they've followed through on all of their previous Kickstarters, which I think this is their ninth, which is fucking crazy. But they've yeah they've always followed through. They always make really high quality products, especially the leather is just really soft and and, and nice. So yeah, I, I would 100% recommend this. I've already spent. Uh, more money than I care to mention on <laughs> on a configuration on of these things. And leather straps. Yeah, so they have pre-made like uh, bundles that you can purchase, but then you can ad hoc add you know a la carte each of the things that you would need to to fit your own particular use case. Right. So we bought the big set and then added on some a la carte stuff to to fill out what both I and my fiance will need. Yeah, the compelling piece here for me was the the tray that you could hang by your front door, and as you walk in, all of your shits just made of magnets and you can just stick it on there so you never have to throw your keys on a table or a bowl or lose them or spread them around your house which i always do it's just there's a magnet that you toss all of your stuff on and it will stick and that's a nice experience so it looks very cool yeah all your pocket stuff just hangs by the door when you're ready to go you grab the stuff you need leave the stuff you don't need behind and you're out yeah so good and for home home invaders this is super convenient because someone's (laughs) all their shit's gonna be right there by the front door well, okay, you 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 found a hole. You found a hole in my hole. I mean, plan here. That's a separate problem. Maybe they need to invent some magnetic door locks or something. Well, cool thing. Kickstarters. I like I like finding kickstarters that rethink these things like a keyring, like that spiral piece of metal that destroys your fingers. Let's make that better. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to invent a better mouse trap, but every once in a while somebody does it and I am on board. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, links in the show notes for all of these cool things. We don't have any progress on a cool things directory quite yet. Tisk tisk, Brian. It just seems like a complex piece of machinery to build. I could be wrong, but you know, we we have to account for any type of cool thing metadata, cool things that contain other cool things like uh, YouTube series or, or like mine today, where it was three different artists that I found on two different websites. Yeah, I'm not really. I just don't know what the format of it should look like, nor how it could be organized and searchable in a way that people will find convenient. So I don't know. I'm overthinking it a little bit, but yeah, I'll try and take a stab. (laughs) Yeah. My problem is that is I think three or four steps ahead. Like I can't design the V1 without thinking of, oh, how will this be searchable? Um, Should it be filterable? Should we have like icons by product? Should, should there be some way to see only books or only videos? Should videos play in line? Like there's all these things that I want to explore that would make the thing better, but they are far beyond a V1 and they usually end up making me not want to build a V1. This is why, uh, this was why MVPs exist. I know, I know. Minimum viable product. Yeah. What's the least we could do that would still be functional? I know, I know. But I'm actually a bigger proponent of the MLP. Minimum lovable product. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Not necessarily what will get the job done, but what will be enjoyable while getting the job done. Yeah. All right, well, hopefully progress on that at some point. No promises, though. A few people did ask about it, so maybe it's something interesting. All right, Marshall, that's it. All right, another episode in the can. Yeah, thanks for joining the 300s with us we hope you enjoyed it let us know what you thought on twitter we're design details fm send us a message send us questions we're working on getting a couple more interviews set up so that will be coming in the next couple weeks having schedule problems a little yeah bit, we, but... we have one scheduled it just ended up being scheduled a little bit further 
out. So uh, we're continuing to work on that. Otherwise, yeah, keep those questions coming. Uh, let us know if we missed anything in the iOS versus Android. Otherwise, we will... I'm sure we missed plenty of stuff, but what is important that we didn't list that you, you think is a, an important distinction between the two platforms? A foundational distinction, or, or more, perhaps more interestingly, what are the philosophical distinctions that would be fun to articulate between Android and iOS? I, I like those kinds of things. Totally. So let us know. Thank you to Sarah and Drew for making this podcast possible as well. They edit and produce all of our shows as well as other shows on the Spec Network at spec.fm. And thank you to Abstract, our sponsor for making this episode possible. Abstract is an end-to-end collaboration platform. It gives you everything from versioning design files and storing them, requesting reviews, collecting feedback, presenting your work, and it handles spec handoff to development. All of this in a platform that works both on and offline. They are available with a 30-day free trial for you and your team at abstract.com. Give them a try today for free on that 30-day trial at abstract.com. So thank you again to Abstract once again for making this episode of Design Details possible. Thanks, Abstract. Thank you again to Race for our iTunes review, which we read uh, in our feedback section of this episode. If you have been enjoying the show, we really appreciate those iTunes reviews. It tells Apple that you listen, that people enjoy the podcast, and then they can recommend the show to other people and we can continue to grow. So if you have a moment and have been enjoying everything that we've been talking about, let us know on iTunes with a review. We really appreciate that. And we'll, we'll try and read out those new reviews as we come across them. So thank you, everyone. That's an, another episode in the bag. In the can. In the can sounds like we've just thrown it away. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's the, the industry lingo, Brian. <laughs> okay. Another one in the garbage. <laughs> yeah, right. One more in the trash. All right. <laughs> More rubbish for your ear. Rubbish for your ear. <laughs> rubbish. 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 <laughs> All right, Marshall. Thank you. All right, buddy. See you next week. Bye.